Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire and to shed light on the topics not fancy enough to talk about at a conference, but important to delve into. I'm your host, Sam Schur, and this week we're talking with Duncan McLeish about colloidal transport of gold. And for the link to Duncan's article, head to our website at www.geochemistry.com. Duncan is a postdoc in Willie William Jones's research group at McGill University. Duncan, welcome to Geochemistry. Thanks a lot, Sam. It's uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I first met Duncan when he was giving a really fascinating talk on the colloidal transport of gold at the Bruce Jack Mine, Canada. And after watching, I immediately reached out and begged for him to share his research here at Geochemistry. Duncan, can you talk to our young listeners about your career path and how you wound up at McGill and why that's special? Yeah, for sure. Um, just, uh, I guess it's a good way to uh, uh, introduce myself. And, and I guess a natural place to start would be uh, for earth sciences would be my undergraduate degree. So I, I did um, uh, I did an undergrad uh, in earth sciences at Dalhousie, University of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, and that was way back in 2000, that was our 2004 to 2008. And um, Originally, I was not uh, really, I, I, I actually don't even think I took a undergrad course in geochemistry. I did some, you know, requisite chemistry, um, but I, I did an honors project in uh, uh, in metamorphic, uh, structural metamorphic geology, looking at uh, some uh, uh, high-grade uh, granulite uh, nice rocks in uh, Georgian Bay, Perry Sound in Ontario, for uh, my supervisor there, who was uh, uh, actually just passed away, unfortunately. His name was uh, Dr. Nick Culshaw. Um, and uh, that kind of like there was some th thermal barometry involved, so looking at estimating pressures and temperatures um, from uh, metamorphic mineral assemblages. So that that kind of there was a little uh, uh, kind of teaser sideways introduction to 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 aspects of geochemistry, uh, more mineral chemistry. Um, and uh, but you know there was no kind of economic um, uh, there was no economic part of that. Uh, but I, after I graduated, I was uh, really interested in, in, in field mapping, and uh, I got a job with the Nova Scotia survey uh, and worked there for a summer. Uh, and that was great. I did uh, uh, re bedrock regional mapping uh, around Halifax. So it was very urban. It's something that you know, we think of doing field mapping fly off, you know, either flying in helicopters or working, uh, uh, and, you know, in, in these kind of great open uh, landscapes. But that was driving around in uh, Nova Scotia DNR truck, knocking on people's doors, asking them if they could look at in outcrops in their backyards and uh you know you were able to have, have lunch at uh, uh tim hortons rather than uh, you know uh, on the side of a mountaintop so that was that was kind of cool just as an aside but um um yeah long story short on the earlier part i basically uh, um, was looking for work after that that was just a summer position and uh, um uh, there was an opportunity to uh, move out west and actually work for the BC uh, Geological Survey as a field assistant. So I, I moved out to Victoria for that. Um, and uh, that um, eventually led to a master's uh, at the University of Victoria. Uh, I was doing some uh, field mapping in uh, uh, the northeast part of the uh, BC uh, foreland belts in the Rocky Mountains. Um, and uh, it so happens that there's a, a line of uh, carbonatite intrusions that uh, uh, basically uh, are found right along the uh, the western margin of, of the foreland belt. And uh, there was a prof at the University of Victoria by the name of Stephen Johnson who was interested in these, uh, just asking a simple question, you know, why do we have carbonatites in this passive margin 
um, uh, stratigraphy that uh, uh, anyone who's been to the Rockies uh, uh, knows the, the beautiful limestone uh, uh, ridgelines and exposures and all of a sudden there's this line of in intrusive rocks. Um, so that was my, my master's and I kind of got involved in economic geology because the, the carbonatite that I studied for my master's, the alley carbonatite, uh, was being explored by a, a company, uh, Tosico Mines, uh, for its um, uh, niobium. And uh, so that was kind of, we were uh, originally kind of just a, 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 a you know, a totally independent from uh, the uh, the economic the the exploration project that was going on there, but um, just naturally because we were mapping the carbonatite, they were drilling it. It kind of evolved into uh, I got a summer position there eventually, and and got involved in in mineral exploration. So that was kind of my you know <laughs> almost ten years later sideways link into um, the exploration side of geochemistry, um, and then um, after. Uh, uh, after that, so that was, I finished that in 2012, I believe, and then uh, I kind of, uh, uh, they, Tosico, the mining company, was based in Vancouver, so I moved to Vancouver. I worked for them and uh, uh, their kind of parent company by the name of Hunter Dickinson, um, and uh, uh, so I got to work all over British Columbia on a variety of different mineral projects, uh, exploration projects that I, I kind of won't, uh, I won't go through all of them, but uh, <laughs> I did, uh, uh, I got to work in a mine, Gibraltar, which is uh, Canada's second largest porphyry mine after um, Highland Valley, so that was pretty cool. Um, and uh, through all those projects, I was basically being exposed to, uh, you know, yeah, the, the very applied sides of, of exploration and, and, you know, geochemistry in terms of, of I was getting interesting, interested in aspects of how do we um, uh, how do we leverage it uh, to uh, uh, basically help us, you know, find uh, whatever the target is that, that, that we're looking for. Um, and uh, uh, so that uh, those were kind of those were exciting years, but they were up and down uh, years in terms of uh, anybody who's been around either. You know, I, I was a consultant for a bit. I was working for these companies directly as an employee for a bit. But, uh, uh, you know, 2011, things were kind of good. And then, then things basically up until I started my PhD in 2015, uh, things were kind of on a downward trajectory in terms of market conditions um and uh, you know metal prices and things like that so it was pretty rocky and and part of the reason i decided to do a phd uh among a lot of things was was just that you know i got i got kind of uh worn out after three or four years of of, of doing uh, um camp jobs doing drill core logging and uh i kind of wanted to i really enjoyed the 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 kind of science behind it and i wanted to kind of get to know ore deposits better at at, at a kind of higher level um so um yeah i guess how did i end up with with uh with with willie specifically um i uh uh there's a, a try and make this story as, as short as possible uh so <laughs> i i was i was working um uh through i mentioned the, the hunter dickinson group of companies uh they had a um a small one of their juniors uh was called uh, uh brigade exploration and they they were exploring a, a small porphyry called tennyson porphyry uh which is close to bruce jack this is in the golden triangle of northwest british columbia um and uh bruce jack is where my my uh, phd was was based and a little where the paper i'll be talking about today all the research was done um so we were kind of one of these satellite exploration projects bruce jack had just hit um their first bonanza you know uh uh 10, plus gram per ton intersections of of, of visible uh electrum and uh everybody was super excited you know the stock price was doing really really well pretty and uh, the parent company, and uh, it was kind of the big success story in the Golden Triangle. I wasn't part of that back then, and we were I was working for Brigade, but uh, we actually had a camp um, uh, in uh, just just north of the town of Stewart. Um, anybody who's been to, to Northwest BC will know Stewart. Um, and uh, uh, the, in the camp, uh, basically, we were fly, it was a fly camp for for our porphyry exploration project. But uh, Pritium was flying. On, uh, anybody who's seen pictures of Bruce Jack knows it's basically up in in uh, uh, the high alpines, surrounded by glaciers. And at the time, it was road inaccessible, so they had to fly in this basically advanced um, uh, uh, equipment to develop the mine. Because the time they're doing a bulk sample, all this kind of stuff. 
stuff with with no road. So they were flying in heavy equip, equipment from an airstrip they had there. And I basically got to meet a lot of some of our at least a portion of their crew and said, hey, Bruce Jack is an awesome deposit. I saw pictures of some of the gold uh, intercepts that they were, were drilling there. And I was just blown away. You know, here I was on this porphyry um, uh, exploration job. And we were basically, you know, as, as with a lot of porphyries, there's no visible gold. I'm straining my eyes just to see calco, small bits of calcopyrite in, in, in veins. And uh, these guys are walking around with with basically, um, you know, nuggets of, of, of gold in, in their core samples that they're displaying, you know, flying out of sight to go bring to Vancouver and, and display. And I just thought it was spectacular. I guess I, you could say I, I caught the gold bug there. Um, so uh, I was basically looking for a PhD project at the time, and uh, I knew there was a fellow by the name of Nick Herakhausen who uh, did a master's here at McGill. Uh, he was the first master's student, I believe, at uh, Bruce Jack. Um, and uh, he he kind of uh, uh, helped me out a bit, get to know the, the company. Uh, Warwick Board was the name of the chief geologist at the time at, at Pritium. And um, uh, I basically brought him, I met him in Vancouver and I noticed that he had all of, or he had some of at least uh, uh, our supervisors, uh, uh, Willie Williams Jones uh, papers taped to his office wall. It was just the first page of the papers. Uh, with the abstract and uh, um, it's like, well, this guy, you know, we're really into gold solubility, figuring out how do we form uh, super high grade veins of gold um, and you know, how do we explore for them if we understand how we can form them. So I was like, well, this is this is I better, you know, meet this guy Willie uh, and uh, uh, so I was actually at um, uh, GACMAC I think it was the year or the year before it was in Ottawa and Willie got the Logan medal so I had a chance to meet him there uh, it's funny all these kind of just chance encounters and I just because I had that contact information I basically uh, almost built the PhD project myself I don't want to take complete credit for it but it, you know I introduced him to Warwick said you know can we do something here we wrote an NSERC CRD grant together um, so that actually took like a whole year to set up and then I in 2015 I, I moved to Montreal from Vancouver and, and started my PhD and here I am seven years later I've just defended it. That's such a cool story. <laughs> Thanks Sam wow. I hope that wasn't too long. <laughs> no 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 you know honestly and this is my opinion going out there to the world I think that a lot of these PhDs that I've heard of through the many years of being in industry is just that they're just so they're so cookie cutter and they're so set up and it's just that why are we even doing PhDs anymore when they don't really have meaning? I know that there's this bunch in Australia where people just go and they'll study these little volcanoes outside of one of the towns in Australia and people just pick one of the old volcano, the cinder cone, and they'll do a PhD on that and it just you know, it just happens over and over again. And it's just like, well, what is the learning there? What is your question? And we've lost the the spirit of the PhD. And well, this gives me a lot of renewed faith in the PhD. And I think that's, I think that's just a really, really neat story about how that this was all set up and how your questions probably continue to evolve as you did it. But that's the whole spirit of the PhD. So very cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, yeah, I guess just to to sum up the the your your original question was you know what 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 what's what can young <laughs> listeners at home take home? I I think it's really you know and not not to poo poo um uh there's yeah I'd say most of of PhDs I've seen um my my fellow students they have yeah they have defined project uh, a supervisor has this question they've gotten funding from either a government agency or a company to to go hire a, you know go get a phd student and tackle this um you know i guess my uh my story is is the opposite and just to encourage people if, if you're really if you're really interesting if you're stuck on a drill program somewhere um you know i, I don't know what proportion of your, your listeners are working in industry but but for those that are um or even i guess stuck in an office you know maybe processing data for uh, a geochemical company um, you know, if, if there's something you're like, whoa, this is really interesting, um, and I want to spend more time on it, then, you know, I'm allowed to underneath this kind of, you know, the nature of industry is it's, it's more rigid and you have goals and objectives, and then you get a new mandate and it changes. And you're like, well, actually, I really like doing that. Um, you know, don't, don't be afraid to go knock on somebody's door and say, you know, do you think, is there any way I could make a study out of this, make a, you know, make a project out of it? And and I think more often than not, you'll be surprised that, um, uh, you know, given the right conditions, uh, people are very supportive for, for people who bring their own projects and their own ideas, because, you know, if you're in the shoes of a supervisor, you're, 
this person's obviously motivated. They've thought about this enough um, to uh, want to to do it and propose the idea, right? So, um, you know, that kind of that, that kind of removes some of the uncertainty when you have these advertised positions and whether or not this person's really motivated by this. Super neat. I guess with that, let's transition now into some some tea. So, what'd you bring for us and spill it? Uh, sure. So um, my tea is uh, a little bit. Um, I guess it's. <laughs> Uh, a little bit self-interested in it because uh, it is related to the the, the paper we're going to talk about for coil transport of gold, um, but but really to, to motivate it, I guess, um, and it is it is kind of kind of gossipy. I mean, it's it's um, it's it's the background um, of uh, uh, of the 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 problem of colloids and how how we started looking for it and and. Um, there's this applies to basically I think yeah, anybody doing science is is um, you know, people have stories of of dogma and and of of going up against uh, um, some uh, knowledge that is kind of assumed you know a priori to be to be be correct and um, in in the colloidal world so first of all if you know what, I just got to do it like what what is a colloid for those people who didn't have a chance to look at the paper um, so the, basically these the idea that there's um, one can form veins of, of of solid gold or at least locally gold solid gold nuggets in hydrothermal uh, quartz carbonate veins um, by uh, Transporting the gold as a as a, a colloidal suspension, so solid nanoparticles of gold that have they have little negative surface charges, and that those negative surface charges enable the 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 um, these little uh, particles to to maintain a suspension. Um, so that's very different from um, the uh, you know ninety. I don't know this quantitatively for sure, but I'm going to go out there and say ninety five percent of any geochemistry now at least applied in mineral exploration assumes that your metal regardless of its gold copper and you name your metal precious or base uh is being transported in those hydrothermal veins uh in the dissolved state so in solution um so this is really a, a, a kind of a fundamentally different way of looking at metal transport to form your old ore deposit that you know we have these these uh, uh, solid uh, particles. Now, um, where I'm going with this is to, to kind of talking about dogma. This is this is the the story, and there's lots of stories in science that I find this very interesting um, of of kind of how people test ideas and how ideas come up. So, uh, the idea of of coil transport is not new. Um, it's uh, certainly. Uh, our group didn't come up with it at McGill. I, the modern workers, other people looking at colloids, not it's 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 not something that anybody alive can take credit for. Really, um, in in economic geology, uh, there and there's still some debate about you know who exactly came up with it originally, but definitely um, Waldemar Lindgren, the uh, father, quote unquote, father of economic geology, one of the founders of the Society of Economic Geologists, um, he was a big pro proponent of of uh, colloidal transport. So so basically forming these ore deposits through transporting uh, uh, metals in suspension rather than in, in solution. And uh, uh, this kind of comes back to, back then um, it was very, uh, you know, we have, if you look at the, the, the paper we're gonna discuss today, we have the, the benefit of being able to image things at the nano scale. So we can actually look for these um, solid evidence of these solid nanoparticles. Back then they didn't have any of that. So um, they basically were, were, were looking at textures and, and wondering, just really speculating on how they could form textures. So the word colloid and coliform, they have a common root. And basically the idea was a lot of these coliform, particularly in, in uh, lead zinc deposits, um, you get spectacular coliform uh, textures, not only in, you know, we see think of them in, in quartz, but also in minerals like sphalerite. And there is this idea that these, these coliform textured minerals form from a gel. And that gel was basically formed of a suspension of, of nanoparticles, really to make the, the kind of short, uh, the, the long story short. And so there is, there is kind of, for, for 30 or 40 years, there was um, a lot of workers in the economic geology community were thinking about ore deposits as forming uh, uh, from colloidal suspensions. 
Um, and then uh, there was a fellow in the 1960s by the name of Edwin Reuter. Uh, I think he was at the USGS. I, I, he, I might be wrong on that. But he um, basically came out with this paper in economic geology. And uh, it's it's the title of this paper to kind of uh, show you the, 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 the weight of these arguments. It basically is the non-colloidal origin of coliform textures in ores. Um, so it was very, it was a, you know, a, a very strongly worded uh, thesis. This is all, uh, you know, and I don't have time to go into all the, his arguments against it, but basically um, that in, in uh, uh, working in parallel with um, uh, other workers at the time, which were showing that you could dissolve a lot of metals in the right kind of, uh, 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 you know, um, complexes. So there is bisulfide or chloride complexes, you know, not just gold, but copper and all this. So people are doing this is all experimental geochemistry. People are having great success in dissolving metals and uh, um, Basically, Reuter did this uh, textual analysis and, and made all these arguments uh, that says, well, you can form these colloidal textures, sorry, these coliform textures simply by precipitating, by you know, boiling or whatever your precipitating me me mechanism is uh, to kind of have these 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 kind of stepwise bands. Um, and uh, it's all it's 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 simply can be explained through um, uh, dissolution and precipitation. Um, so I guess. Um, the end of the T is is that um, you know it, it, this was um, kind of accepted on a theory based on the theory, but but nobody really um, nobody really challenged this um, until uh, the the nineteen I guess that the nineteen eighties and nineteen seventies there was actually some uh, Soviet workers, the Russians, who were basically still trying to figure out if you could could explain some of these these textures um, from colloidal transport. But but in America, um, it wasn't until uh, uh, I guess the West uh, a fellow by the name of, of Jim Saunders uh, wrote a paper that was published in Geology in I think it was nineteen ninety, and that laid out a case again for uh, uh, colloidal transport. Um, and and the issue there is is it really um, the nice thing about uh, uh, um, uh, transporting uh, uh, gold or, or any metal as a solid particle is it, it gets around a huge problem in um, in the solubility world or the solution world is the problem of solubility limits. So think of um, just as a kid, uh, I remember used to be pouring sugar or salt into water. You can, you know, it's fun to like, you know, take a big heaping tablespoon and dump it in and watch it all go away. But if you keep adding those tablespoons, eventually you're going to reach a solubility limit. You can no longer dissolve any more in that beaker of water and you'll see basically layers of it depositing all, all along the bottom of your glass or your beaker or whatever you're doing this in as your little childhood experiment. Um, but uh, uh, that that same problem exists in, uh, in metal transport. And so uh, Metals like gold have very, very low solubility in hydrothermal solutions. And um, so how do we explain these bonanza ores? Um, in Saunders' case, there was uh, he was looking at deposits in the southwest U.S. I believe it was the sleeper deposit. Um, and uh, um, in our case, Bruce Jack, if you're transporting these metals as a solid nanoparticle, if they're not if they're not dissolved, um, then you're not you're not bound by all these solubility limits in terms of, of uh, uh, geochemical models and, and, and such. So um, the the important thing is, is that that, uh, you know, these guys uh, um, is is to always think critically, I guess, at, at the the um, uh, basically um, there's been times throughout, you know, uh, in these different periods where people are making these blanket statements and they get repeated and repeated and repeated in journals that, um, you know, there is uh, 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 no evidence for for coliform textures falling through coil transport. And that kind of governs the way of thinking and the teaching. Um, but it's, you know, it is important to ask, you know, where is the evidence for this? And I think, you know, in the 90s, people started asking these cr critical questions again. And, um, you know, it, probably in the 80s too. But the nice thing about that time is that we had the all of a sudden the ability to image these things. So they, uh, uh, the advance of, of um, uh, 
transmission uh, electron microscopy to basically go from you know, on the SEM we look at things at micron levels, uh, but go down to the nanometer scale and uh, and look for evidence. And and that's that's something that, that we've done in our research and we've really you know kind of uh, uh, built on these suggestions of others and basically you know tested these two groups because there is. Um, is nobody's fault, but but before we had widespread kind of the ability of TMs, it was really just taking one group against the other, you know, saying, oh, there's no no colloids. The other group saying, oh, it's a great great idea to explain these textures, but unless you can image down to that scale, um, you know, that that's the way to, to to test the dogma. So I guess I don't know if that's how gossipy that is, but it's always important in science. I mean, I think what you did is you brought me some kind of elevated high school mean girls, you know, turf war. So I mean, I like it. This fits into the tea. I like it. It's spanned across decades. I feel it's a very elevated tea that you've brought to us here. <laughs> But it's very interesting because unless you spent a lot of time researching and had to go through all the different journals and papers to find stuff for, say, a thesis, why would we as normal fans of gold and understanders of gold know this kind of thing? So thanks for bringing that to us here to listen to. No, I think that was really interesting. I always really enjoy what people bring to tea. It's always quite different to people's interpretation of tea time. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. I mean, you, you give us, uh, I've listened to a few of the other, these, these uh, podcasts, and there's a lot of uh, leeway in terms of what, what constitutes tea. So uh, it's, uh, I think that's nice. Tea's what you make of it. <laughs> exactly. But it should never be harmful. And so I think we've appreciated all these different groups' work throughout the years. You've let no opinion down, which I think was nice, but you did bring this little, uh, this little turf war to us. So I think that's very interesting. And I think it's Definitely describes stuff that continues through today. I mean, I've had, even though I only put out uh, for my master's research, something that was relatively small in the grand scheme of the world of gold and epithermal. I mean, I've had people approach me with their ideas on how all my research was completely wrong and how the entire group's research was completely wrong. And I was like, thank you for sharing. I'm going to go have another glass of wine now because... <laughs> I'm not particularly, not that I wasn't interested in their opinion, but they were a little bit aggressive about it. And I was like, mm, okay, maybe not have this conversation at 10 p.m. at PDAC, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, for sure. I, I think I think the, the important take home of all these, you know, uh, yeah, I guess a turf war is a good way to, to, to kind of sensationalize it. Um, exactly. Is, uh, <laughs> um, is, is, you know, never be afraid to... Um, challenge you know if somebody walks up to you so you're completely wrong i'm usually i get 10 10 p.m at pdac probably not the best place to do it. exactly if you're, you know, if you're in the <laughs> afternoon on the in front of a poster or something like that and and you know i'm sure i don't I, we're not here to be friends i i want to hear the reasons why you think i'm completely wrong and um so i guess what i'm trying to say is is i think part of that's healthy but but really and i guess i'm getting philosophical here but but really um <laughs> Uh, you know, you got you got to support it with evidence. And I think, mm. um, you know, one of the challenges, especially in geology, where things are kind of abstract, geochemistry is a little bit better because it has that link to chemistry, that kind of quantitative, you know, we can write chemical reactions to describe things and we can test these in the laboratory and the experimental geochemistry side. But still, um, you know, relative to what the chemists are doing, it's abstract. And I think in that abstractness comes this, um, you know, in order to understand things, uh, we kind of, um, there's a simplification and there's also, you know, for lack of a better word, there is, there is a, I think, you know, in some circles, dogma has an easier time in the geosciences than other areas sure. because it's just, you know, it has been said that it is this way. You know, we've learned this and it gets drilled into our minds. And you, and you see this, you know, editors, people who edit journals um, get, get this all the time. You see these statements and you get this back from the reviewer or if you're a reviewer, so, you know, where are your references to support this? You know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, not, not to throw a, a, a Reuter under the bus, but I mean, basically, you know, it, people start with a really strong, strong title, you know, the non-colloidal origin of something. I says, well, you know, where, where's your evidence for that? And if you provide it, then that's, that's good. But uh, a lot of the times people don't, back up, you know, big, strong statements with evidence. And, and that's, um, you know, that's kind of where we were at with this whole colloid uh, uh, argument. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, no, I totally hear. And I mean, in a different way, I've dealt with dogma for a really long time now in terms of a, a more of a mineralogical approach in some of the work that I've been doing. And it's just the hardest hurdle to to overcome. So we definitely all need to be a bit more scientific in our work and first principles. What are we observing versus what are we supposed to know? Great point. All right. The paper that we chose to read is the colloidal transport and flocculation are the cause of the hyper enrichment of gold in nature. Mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> Guys, uh, For if you didn't know, I had to read that three times. <laughs> what I'm going to say here is that while many of our listeners here are geochemists, although I've heard lately that we've now picked up some geophysicists, not many people are thoroughly overeducated on metal transport mechanisms like a lot of us geochemists and particularly as uh, Willie students. So before we delve into your research on the colloidal transport of gold, could you provide our listeners with a baseline as to why understanding metal transport is important in both a research and an economic geology standpoint? And in this question and in all things, you can be as specific and in the weeds as possible. Lately, we've been doing a lot of shows on exploration geochemistry and machine learning. So it's really Exciting to be back here at the heart of academia. Staying on the the, the applied side of this, I mean, um, you know, wh why is understanding uh, the way you transport your metals important to um, you know find understanding a deposit and exploring for whatever um, commodity you're exploring for? Uh, well, I think the best um, the the best example to give is um, if we think about uh, uh, solubility transport. So basically, if, if we're assuming that that uh, our metals are all dis transported, um, dissolved in solution in the hydrothermal fluids in, in your ore deposit. Now, um, especially these days, you know what what is you know what what is one of the the most popular um, vectoring tools in in at least in some uh you know I'm, I'm obviously making a huge generalization here uh but in in many uh, uh types of ore deposits um you know it might be hyperspectral uh uh core scanning you look at, at the, the the your gang mineral chemistry you know, what, what are your white micas telling you now um so this is this is very important because people that get that kind of when i talk about you know this links into the last uh thing we said uh, point we talked about is to think about things really critically and you know why are we are we just accepting this or we are we you know, why are we doing this this way um and you know at the foundation of looking at alteration mineral chemistry is is one is assuming that the ore fluid that's flowing through those veins um is altering the wall rock and and so you're looking at the the alteration the wall rock alteration to understand the processes the transport mechanisms that are happening in to gain insight into what's going on in the veins and um you know to go a little more detail you're, you're trying to find specific um processes that trigger the deposition of your um of of the metal you're interested in so in the case of gold um, and other metals you know boiling might be an important um uh mechanism depositional mechanism so you're you're saying well you know what 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 does boiling do to the surrounding wall rock how does it alter it how does it, are the things we can do uh because the thing about alteration is it's really really widespread right so it's easy to go out and um you know to the the overused analogy find a needle in the haystack you know you can scan a ton of core. Uh, most of the stuff you're going to be scanning is wall rock, uh, um, so it's you know you can understand a lot more, more, more there than just by looking at the veins themselves. Um, but uh, you know the, the the thing though is is that um, that's you know everything I just explained is built on the the assumption. And yes, I'm I'm picking you know, I'm, I'm staying on the colloidal track here, but it is in fairness it is the the subject of today's paper um, is. Uh, that is all built on the assumption that your metal is being transported in the solution. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to do this um, and and that the 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 alteration in the wall rock is reflective of of the the uh, or depositional event. So you say, oh, let's let's go and try and find this, um, uh, you know, uh, 
if you're trying to, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. If, if you epithermal to porphyry transition, you want to know kind of the roots you're looking for, um, you know, maybe the illite to uh, uh, perophyllite transition, uh, and you're trying to kind of position yourself within the hierarchy and you know, well, you know, this certain white mica is characteristic of the boiling zone. Um, and so we're going to go, you know, map all that mica that's characteristic boiling, and we're going to invest all of our resources there to explore because we think that's where all the gold is going to deposit. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what if you don't understand the process of that, you know, of that deposition correctly? What if boiling is not causing that, that, that deposition? Um, and uh, uh, so that, you know, that, that's why it's really critical to understand, understand um, uh, that, uh, that part of the ore forming process um, and um, and how the metal is being transported because it's basically driving your your you know if 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 there's other means at play um, and we discussed this a little about the paper and we can get into the chat later then maybe alteration mapping isn't going to tell you anything um, about how uh, uh, if it's for example if boiling isn't your trigger for for depositing gold or copper or or silver or whatever you're interested in. so. There's my my short answer. <laughs> no, I think it was a great short answer just because so I worked and still do work quite a bit in hyperspectral and there's a lot of these now generalizations that we're looking for the transition from muscovite to fengite. And the question is, why exactly? And it's just because there's been a few papers written about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where when you get towards the fengite, that's where you're going to find your copper. If anything, I found very few deposits worldwide where you do find your copper associated with fengite. And it's just because they're not asking the right question and they're not understanding that transport mechanism well enough to make that make that call. Well, it might and it might work really well in one deposit where they were sure. the paper, right. You know, there's a lot of this too. Mm -hmm. that, uh, um, you know, to kind of go back to the, you know, I don't want to beat, beat a dead horse here, but but you know, go back. It's to good the, to the beat dog. these dead horses. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, another issue with with dogma is, is and in this case, maybe it's not that's not a proper name for it. That's that's being you know overly. It's not giving it credit because it might be good science in one deposit and they've, they've shown it. And yes, that muscovite to, to fengite transition is is that is the sweet spot. But then don't just go take that to your deposit and say, oh, well, just because this is in the same deposit bucket, you know, it's in the same class of epithermal deposit or porphyry deposit that we're expecting to find the exact same ore forming processes or metal transport processes. So, uh, you know, it's it's it don't constrain yourself by those things. You know, look at look at your own deposit. But I think that's exactly it. And I think more people need to think of this in terms of the ore forming process, the metal transport process, and not just, okay, we're looking for this transition to the between these two minerals. And I think that's such an excellent okay. point. And I'm Good really glad that people hear this. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys. So now we're going to jump into the paper. But first, what I really wanted to do was just, and it's not so much a quiz for Duncan, as much as just to get everybody prepared for some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about. And we've already covered a few of these uh, questions, so I'm going to skip over them. But really what I want to get out of the way first was just to get everybody onto the same page and just to ask some basic questions. And the first of those would be, Duncan, what's meant by physical chemical conditions, oxygen fugacity, or what we see more often as FO2, as well as pH? Basically, uh, I, you know, I, I, I came in, my, my, I think as I mentioned, my master's is mostly in structural geology, um, although I kind of flirted with this a little bit in, in uh uh, throughout working with for different companies, you know, I, this was largely um, uh, new to me when I started my PhD. So um, I can appreciate the need to define these these terms um, and you know what why we care about them. Uh, so basically, physical chemical conditions, um, and it's important just for everyone. Everybody mixes this up, and anyone, you know, Willie, our supervisor, just to have a quick aside about him. He he always catches people doing this, and you know, I've been guilty of it. It's not. Uh, physiochemical, it's physico-chemical. Um, it's easy, even even uh, uh, your your word or Google or whichever spell check you have often gets it wrong. Um, but physico-chemical is basically a basket term to uh, describe all these different parameters that um, uh, can vary in your ore fluid. Um, so these are things such as um, uh, FO2. So um, uh, the fugacity of oxygen is, is essentially just the oxygen activity, if you've heard 
chemists and that. So uh, basically the availability, I mean, I'm, I'm probably, I'm sure chemists are rolling over if I oversimplify this too much. But <laughs> Oversimplify, but, you know, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just think about it as the availability of oxygen, you know, more more oxidized environments, oxidized environments are going to have higher FO2. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I tie it into mineral chemistry. So the geologists, you know, it's, it's nice to just look at um, the formula of a mineral. You know, how many oxygens are there? Um, are you going to have, uh, you're like, oh, I got all these sulfide minerals, but here I have sulfate. So look, that's actually pretty cool. The, the, the sulfur is being an anion in the, the sulfides, and then something's causing it to be a cation somewhere else when it when it's a sulfate, right, like gypsum. Um, and that's because of the, you know, if there's lots of oxygen around, presumably it's going to steal electrons and make the, the sulfur behave as a, as a cation. So you, know, you see things like gypsum, it's typically... Um, uh, tied with with conditions of of, of you know, higher oxygen availability, um, and uh, things you know P pH. I don't think you know need, needs a definition, but you know how um, how acidic or um, uh, basic are your are your ore fluids, and that um, uh, you know all of these parameters uh, uh, in terms of metal transport. Basically, uh, people who study metal transport they try and they look for a sweet spot. So there's all these different diagrams that plot FO2 versus pH or any of the other parameters that I've just mentioned, you know, salt activity of sulfur is another, another one. Um, and uh, uh, on those diagrams, there's basically, if you're looking for gold or whatever, um, based in part on laboratory experiments or thermodynamic modeling, there is a sweet spot where you can say we can, we can dissolve the you know the highest possible amount of of gold or copper or whatever element at these conditions. Uh, so what are the what are those optimal conditions for metal transport? And if we understand those optimal conditions, um, then we can take the next step and say where in the deposit we're trying to explore did those optimal conditions exist? Um, and so you know you can get vectors from from this kind of information. So I I, I don't know if that is that is that. I love that. Fair and enough. I especially loved how you finished that out and brought it back into both the sweet spot of transporting any kind of metal and then also into especially what economic ge geologists would love to know is how do we vector? And I think that's a really important thing to anybody listening here that you can always reach out and ask us more questions about this topic that we're talking about now. I think you've done a really good job for now of just summarizing it because that's all we want before we get into really some more of the meat of the paper. But it's all about understanding how you're moving metals from one place to another and then that's a way that you can vector and vector i would argue probably more successfully than just some of the standard dogma say that that you would usually use and so that's why we love to talk about this stuff <laughs> one other t-ball question and we've talked about it a few times but i think it's important especially in the case here we're going to be talking about bruce check which is an intermediate sulfidation system. Can you just define for us boiling? Boiling is a mechanism for, for metal, most commonly at least, uh, a, a mechanism for metal deposition. So, um, you know, and it's it's easy to confound the two. I mean, people mm -hmm. talk usually about, you know, metal transport conferences. How do we, you know, how do we mobilize whatever we're looking for into these veins? Well, it's important to, to, to not oversimplify. And remember, there's really two, two important steps. One is you got to get the metals into the veins either in solution or suspension. Um, and then separate from that, you know, you might move them around and with these, these obviously these are fluids circulating in, in a plumbing system. Um, separate from that is how do you deposit those metals? And, and boiling most commonly is a, a, a mechanism, it looked as a, me a mechanism to basically dump out your metals from solution. And so um, the, the, the magical thing about boiling is um, it's, you know, and there's other mechanisms. So one would be fluid mixing. You might have meteoric waters mixing with magmatic waters. Um, but of, of all the different mechanisms out there, it is probably the most efficient to vary those physical chemical parameters that we just defined and described um, to, to vary them very extremely. So because um, like, you know, whether it's um, uh, dissolved transport or um, uh, suspension transport of, of your metals, basically uh, solutions or suspensions, they're, they're happy, right? You need to disturb them to basically precipitate or, or flocculate. 
and um, and by flocculate, all I mean is 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 basically uh, in the case of suspension transport, uh, getting these little nanoparticles to 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 uh, aggregate. Um, and uh, yeah, so so what what do you you know you and by disturb I mean you know change one of those physical chemical parameters. Uh, so have a dramatic change in temperature. You know, cool the the fluid very quickly. Uh, change its pH. You know, make it much more basic. Uh, uh, change the oxygen uh, the the oxygen activity. The ability of FO two. Um, and the nice thing about boiling is it's like the kind of like this magic bullet is it it does everything that I just mentioned. You know, it boiling cools the fluid so you can drop temperature rapidly. Um, uh, boiling changes the the pH. You boil off your your hydronium ions um, and the FO2 and, and basically it changes everything. So it, it's very disruptive and uh, you can deposit a lot of metals um, through through boiling, uh, we believe. And um, uh, so that's, I think that answers your question, right? You were just it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and I love that. And I love how now we've also talked about this distinction between transport and deposition, which I think is also something that is underappreciated. We'll just go with that. And then moving on, and we've talked about this quite a bit, but I think it's just Probably one of the last things I want to talk about in terms of simple things that I think will have a big impact, especially on our economic geologists that are listening. You talk here about the hyper enrichment of gold. We talk a lot in exploration about bonanza gold grades. So what do you mean about this hyper enrichment? And then how does this have a similar meaning, if so, to bonanza gold grades? Very good question. Um, hyper enrichment for, uh, you know, without getting into very fine nuances, uh, let's just say that it's synonymous with the word bonanza. Um, it's bonanza is more of a, and it's, I think when we were writing this paper, uh, I won't go through the whole submission, you know, the, this paper is published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, we submitted it to some other journals first, but, uh, you know, one thing that we saw in reviews uh, is that people, uh, anyone who's who's not in, ex a lot of people who are not in exploration uh, don't know what, you know, Bonanza. Bonanza is, is kind of a colloquial term, if you will, for describing a really high grade gold. We all think of the prospector striking it rich saying, you know, Bonanza. Uh, but <laughs> um, uh, chemists and physicists and others uh, aren't very familiar with it because it's not a term that kind of is batted around in their uh, their realm. So basically, to define it more fundamentally, Bonanza is the hyper, you know, Bonanza grades are hyper enriched gold grades. I mean, there is no, um, and maybe somebody will, listener will correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, we've, we looked for, there's no formal definition by any kind of geological council for the term bonanza, but generally speaking, people think of bonanza grades as being in the hundreds, if not the thousands of grams per ton or PPM uh, uh, gold. And, um, you know, perhaps you get bonanza concentrations of other minerals too. Uh, so basically, the how does the hyper-enrichment of gold occur in nature is just another way of asking, how do we form bonanza deposits of gold in, in nature? Now, pivoting towards the actual paper away from some of these uh, definitions, glad we got them out of the way, though. We keep talking about transport now. We've talked a bit about deposition. In the case of this epithermal system like Bruchek, starting from the magma chamber upwards, what is your proposed mechanism for the transport and deposition of gold? And in particular, what makes Bruce Jack different from other similar deposits? It's a very, very good question. And, and I'm, I'm going to kind of, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, uh, upfront about this. I'm, I'm not, I'm going to kind of give a political answer to it. You know, <laughs> to the question very well. Uh, it's and probably because we don't, we don't know. So, um, yeah, Bruce Jack, there are some unique things about Bruce Jack. One of them is that uh, a majority of the epithermal veins, at least the uh, electrum hosting epithermal veins, um, uh, so electrum is gold, silver alloy, for those who don't know, and that is the V or mineral at, at Bruce Jack. Um, most of the veins are, are are carbonate veins as opposed to quartz veins. So uh, that's slightly different from a lot of other bonanza style epithermal deposits where everybody's looking for, you know, chalcedonic quartz and and uh, very, very quartz focused. Um, so aside from that, though, I mean, uh, Bruce Jack has a lot of similarities with other epithermal systems. It's in a sea of, of, of sericite, uh, of white mica alteration. Um, and there, you know, we, we won't go into all the, the the specifics there, but there, you know, there are on the surface, you see locally epithermal textures. Um, there are a lot of things that make it look like a, any other epithermal deposit in, in the world. Um, and uh, uh, the, the thing, though, is, is that we don't like 
we've looked for evidence of colloidal transport at British Jack as a way to explain the hyper enrichment of gold there. Others have looked uh, in other deposits, but but the the um, the the groups are are few and, and far between. So I mentioned uh, Saunders uh, uh, starting this in, in the southwest US. People have worked down there. Um, and uh, there's uh, a group in Australia. Um, uh, 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 I believe it's Laura Petrella. She is, I think she's at, uh, I hope I'm getting this wrong, University of Western Australia in, in Perth. They're looking at, at uh, for colloids um, in, uh, in orogenic settings. Um, but these are, you know, similar to us, maybe a group of, of four, five, six researchers um, and uh, looking at one deposit or maybe two deposits. Um, and uh, so, I guess what I'm this is a long way, way of saying is is colloidal transport might be happening in you know it might be commonplace uh, but people haven't been looking for ev direct evidence of it um, so we only have this handful of deposits maybe uh, you know, half a dozen where we have images of of gold nanoparticles um, in the veins and you can say wow this must be uh, 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 and it's not to say just to be clear for everyone. Um, uh, Solution transport and uh, colloidal transport or nanoparticle transport, these are not mutually exclusive processes. You can have both happening at the same time in, in a deposit. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the answer to your question is, is, is we don't know, um, uh, you know, is Bruce Jack, is it a super unique deposit? Uh, or is it, you know, is this happening everywhere underneath our noses and we just, uh, you know, we haven't appreciated yet. Um, I guess, sorry, just the last thing you, you could argue that, you know, Brishek is somewhat unique in terms of its, there's, there is, a, a, you know, very, very high grades there, but um, there are, you know, there are other Bonanza gold deposits around the world. So even that kind of, you know, it's hard to call Bruce Jack unique in that in that sense. Thinking about one, I won't name it, but I'm thinking about this one very famous high sulfidation deposit. It was mined mostly the super gene for a very long time, then different layers of it, and then they got into the sulfide portion, and then they kept drilling down deeper into the hypogene, and they found I don't really know how you describe it, but this this section of it that was just these bonanza style hyper enrichment of, of gold they had no idea how to explain it and it was probably just one of the coolest little things that i saw anyway that's that's an aside everybody that's me uh, reminiscing <laughs> so I, I think something that maybe our listeners would like me just to ask just to clarify with you when you say carbonate veins you're not talking about carbonate infill like later infill you're talking about primary carbonate veins yeah, so I, I, absolutely. I mean, um, the the uh, there is. I mean, yeah, primary carbonate hosting electrum is is what we see uh, the vast majority of mm -hmm. of ore veins at Bruce Jack. That's not to say there isn't quartz in the veins, but we're thinking. I mean, it's not even then. Bruce Jack's not unique. We see lots of uh, in epithermal systems, for example, uh, manganoan calcite. That that pink calcite tends to be um you know usually it's not host to the ore but there are even then there's a few um uh, there's a deposit called frutel del norte in, in ecuador uh that has a lot of carbonate and electrum it's it's uh, uh some have suggested that it's an analog for Bouchek. um so but yeah we're not talking about carbonate we're not talking about carlin style processes where there's carbonate replacement and there's secondary um uh no that, that's one thing that uh um uh, you know, we really, and we know this because we've looked in, on the nanoscale. Uh, uh, it, it has been suggested before that at Bruce Jack that a lot of the carbonate is late and uh, quartz transported most of the gold. Um, you know, people have even suggested that, you know, quartz was uh, the main um, uh, matrix in which colloidal suspensions, these silica gels, uh, uh, were, were transporting colloids um at bruce jack but the thing is is when we started making all these so we made in order to, to um look for uh, uh evidence of 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 colloidal transport you basically make these i mentioned the transmit transmission electron microscope so you make these tem foils so they're basically thin sections for the tem and they're ultra thin they're like uh less than 100 nanometers thick they're thin enough so you can pass a beam a stream of electrons through the sample and image it that way. So rather than standard SEM, you're bombarding the surface of your thin section. 
with a, an electron uh, beam, and then you're looking at basically the the uh, uh, re reflected or refracted uh, uh, electrons to to um, generate an image and test your chemistry and all that. So on the TEM, you're you're passing electrons through, and that that enables you to basically go down to that nanometer scale. Um, and uh, so when we made these TEM foils, uh, not only can you see, and if you read the paper, you'll see the images of of the spherical nanoparticles. And we, I'm not going to go into super detail here, but uh, you can get down to the level of seeing the, the the atomic lattice fringes. So these are the the edges of the lattice planes that make up the mineral. And anybody who took first grade mineralogy knows that um, uh, every mineral has a different lattice fringe spacing. Uh, so you can identify what it is. We identified these nanoparticles as gold. Um, but separate from that, you can look at what the gold's sitting in. And everywhere we looked, uh, the gold is sitting in calcite, not quartz. Um, and so that's why we believe that you know uh, uh, this 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 calcite is is primary. So there's the long answer to your question. And you know this long answer is perfect because later on, which I no longer have to ask, I wanted you to describe some of these images because guys, go read the paper. At least go look at the images; they're pretty spectacular. And some of his other work that he's done, he's got even more spectacular images. So that's another plug for you, Duncan. <laughs> Pivoting a little bit, something else that I found really interesting about the paper is that we tend to talk a lot about seismic pumping in exploration geochemistry as a mechanism for getting the signature of a buried deposit to the surface. But I find it fascinating in your paper that you're describing it as a methodology by which the veins at Bruchek are becoming hyper-enriched in gold. So can you expand a bit upon this? Seismic pumping, uh, you know, this idea that you have fault valves, right, that are opening and closing, it's a very uh, uh, common model for, for boiling. So just forget all the colloidal stuff uh, people have been talking about a long for a long time in terms of solution transport and deposition models. Um, because uh, of course boiling you can boiling is a very great way of precipitating stuff so um but but we envisage it somewhat differently because um uh basically if you if you have a a fault valve that's opening and close uh, uh closing rather than that opening and closing of the valve uh due to seismic events um rather than that causing the, the precipitation of the gold and it's staying there um we see uh the uh, seismic pumping potentially as uh, uh, a ability to circulate loculated colloidal suspensions. So basically nuggets. And you see, if you look at the paper, you'll see there's evidence of all these originally spherical uh, nanoparticles. And then elsewhere where we look, we see these aggregates. So we've kind of frozen in time in these petrified, you know, hydrothermal veins. Um, we see uh, evidence of of the flocculation. And so you may be able to, uh, uh, you know, if you can circulate suspensions of nanoparticulate gold, why can't you circulate suspensions of flocculated aggregates? And so it may be like that that um, uh, that plug in your kitchen sink, that 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 uh, that 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 clot you might have when you have a if you think of 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 uh, of of grease or something, or or uh, milk is another good analogy. So milk is a colloidal suspension. Um, it's fat particles. And there, when, when milk is happy and it's fresh, right, you basically pour it into your cereal, you don't expect to see any clumps at all. Um, because if you saw clumps, if you saw flocculated milk, you know it's going bad. And what that process is of milk going bad is, is basically the charges on the uh, uh, fat particles basically canceling each other and, and, and basically you get um, curdling of, of milk. So imagine these curdles of, of gold in your hydrothermal veins, um, just as if you're pouring clots of milk out from your from your expired carton, um, you can circ you can transport these things. They can be in suspension in your fluids, and so maybe if you have a fault valve opening, an earthquake happens, um, you then circulate more fluids. You can basically um, move these clots along until where you other places where you can aggregate them into even larger clots. Um, and so maybe your your you know seismic pumping rather than just being a way to to um, uh, to open and close fault valves and, and boil, you're actually you're you're mechanically or physically transporting these clots uh, to make make them aggregate and have you even bigger clots of gold, if that makes any sense at all. It does. And it's so fascinating. Maybe I'm just a little bit spoiled. Oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> 
Um, but just spoil because I've heard this twice, but listeners, uh, have a listen to that part again because it will make sense if it doesn't the first time, definitely the second time. On a related note, I love that you're just you're not just talking about these macro vein features where we can physically see and what anybody that stops by, well, now Newcrest owns Bruce Shack. So maybe at the next PDAG or Roundup, they'll have some core samples set out for Bruce Shack. But it's not just these huge aggregates of gold that you can see. It's also a lot of what Duncan has been talking about are these also nanoscale features. So can you just chat to our listeners about how you investigated this and whether you think it could be an important in economic geology setting. And I know that we talked a bit about what you saw when you were looking at under the the TEM, but do you think that this is something important in an economic geology setting? Uh, great, great question. And I, that, uh, I mean, to go back to uh, uh, a kind of earlier answer I gave, but in a different way, I mean, it, it, it um, you know, really to drive home the point that, that we're really just at, um, this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of starting to investigate um, uh, ore deposits at the nanoscale. And, um, you know, we're, we spent all of uh, this session talking about colloids, but um, it, just, just in general, you think of any, any way that you're investigating your ore deposit, um, whether or not it's doing petrography, um, uh, doing, uh, um, you know, just, just even uh, looking at, at, at uh, uh, drill core with the headlands. Um, everything we've done kind of in the last hundred, since the start of mo- modern exploration, let's say last 50 or 100 years, um, we've kind of gone down to the micro scale. Um, so obviously people have been looking at fin sections for a long time. Uh, I think SEMs have been around since just before the Second World War. Um, and uh, you know, so that we've been kind of uh, those methods, while they've definitely advanced and been refined, um, there hasn't been a major new imaging uh, uh, method available to us. Um, uh, and I guess I'm talking about direct imaging. I know there's other, you know, there's indirect imaging through looking at chemical core scanning and things like that, which are obviously huge, huge advancements. Um, but um, the TEM is really, uh, you know, there's the groups that I mentioned, they're looking for, for gold nanoparticles, but you know, we, we can we can now go look at uh, down to the atomic level almost at any question you're interested in in your ore deposit. You know, um, so it's uh, uh, it, it's a new frontier uh, and I, I don't think that's an exaggeration to say that. Um, so, um, you know, the I guess the the the, you know, the applications are are. Um, are, I mean, at this point, almost limitless because we're just we're looking at one single process here. But I mean, if you wanted to understand other processes and 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 uh, or just even to understand the distribution, you know, if you're looking at if you have chemical anomalies in in your in 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 your white mica or muscovite or something like that, and you know, is that is that occurring uniformly? Is that is that um, uh, or if in mineral chemistry, is is that uh, a trace element you're so interested in um, is that occurring in the mineral everywhere, or is that also occurring as a nanoparticle in that mineral? In which case, you know, it's not going to be uniformly distributed. Uh, and so, there's all these kind of questions that once you go down to the the nanoscale that that are opened up. And and to be honest, they just haven't been really investigated thoroughly in uh, by economic geologists. It's a great plug. And for all you listeners out there that are wondering what to do for your PhDs or masters, here you go. (laughs) No, that's super interesting. And and I really love that insight. So guys, to round out our discussion, I just have one additional question that I hope more than anything inspires our listeners. Duncan, can you just describe to us when you had your Eureka moment and how you and the Willie group went from a typical bisulfite gold complexation to colloidal transport sand silico gels at Bruchek as your mechanism? That's a great question. And to give credit to Willie, and and sorry, uh, people are probably going to roll their eyes when I mention the word dogma again. Um, but, <laughs> no, uh, uh, none of us are. We're geochemists. <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> Uh, being like, oh, that's the guy who was just talked about. Uh, he was, you know, used the word dogma 50 times in the interview. But um, if, to be fair to Willie, and a lot of credit is due here. I mean, he is a researcher. He literally has a uh, paper 10 years ago that's, that's titled uh, "It's an Elements Gold in Solution." It's all about gold in solution. Now, Willie has been spent his career on trying to understand how you can um, 
transport and precipitate uh, metals, gold, especially from solution. It's a huge step for him, somebody like him, who's who's um, uh, you know had a, a career uh, investigating a certain mechanism and you know perhaps uh, spewing some dogma himself uh and then say well you know what let's let's go look at something completely different and it might even disagree with 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 models we've proposed previously um and that's kind of exactly what happened here i mean um uh the eureka moment uh you know really um you know and, and i have to uh, give credit to, to other people we were, we were not the first people to do this um uh, even here at mcgill i mentioned his name there's a fellow by the name of nick harakhausen who was looking for gold colloids uh, he had a different supervisor he wasn't in the the willie group his uh, uh supervisor was a structural geologist by the name of christy Rowe. um and they were they were looking primarily in the quartz and they did find limited evidence of nanoparticles uh, uh silver and some gold in 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 quartz um but uh you know they they, they didn't uh uh find um, at least good evidence, and and by good evidence I mean images of thousands of these nanoparticles that are in these uh, that are in the PNAS paper, and evidence for their their aggregation for flocculation, um, and so that's why uh, uh, the word uh, uh, flocculation really made it into the title of the paper. You know, colloidal transport and flocculation. That's why it's so wordy. Because um, you know, there's this pressure when you're trying to get into these journals like PNAS that that it has to be novel. Um, so it's it's this idea that we have yes, people have imaged nanoparticles before, but we are the first people to image their show direct evidence of the aggregation of the nanoparticles, and that's so important because sure you can have lots of nanoparticle suspensions, but how do you get from the five nanometer scale? So we're talking one billionth of a meter. You know, a hundred thousand times th thinner than, than the human hair. Um, to uh, if you look at the paper, or go pick up a piece of Bruce Jack core, to literally uh, a baseball size, a fist-sized nugget mm -hmm. of gold. You know, how do you scale up? And and that that I mean, flocculation is is the key driver of that process. So you know, really, the Eureka moment wasn't even seeing these nanoparticles. The first lamella we made. Um, or foils, sorry, uh, some people call them TEM lamellas and call them foils, same thing, uh, let's just call it a section. Uh, we, we imaged on TEM and we found uh, nanoparticles, we found some in calcite and we said, oh, this is, this is interesting, but you know, people have seen this before, not the calcite bit. Uh, but then the second one we made, uh, or maybe it was the second imaging session on the same foil, I can't remember anymore. We basically went to a different area of the section and, and you can see, I think it's uh, uh, in the paper, if you're reading it, I think it's figure, uh, three, if I'm not mistaken, um, we went to one of these kind of, there's lots of all these spherical particles, but then there's particles that have different shapes. They're bigger. And I think that this one in particular, Willie called it the steer's head because uh, it looks like a steer's head. <laughs> and and we were able to zoom in enough on it and 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 just resolve the TM's much more finicky than an SEM, depending on the passing electrons through. If things are too thin, you're not going to see those little lattice fringes. If things are too thick, you're not going to see those little uh, lattice fringes. But in this one area of the steer's head nanoparticle, we were able to see that um, it was composed of um, multiply multiple different lattice fringe orientations and that's very clear in that figure you can see um and basically the implication of that is that it's evidence of uh because when you look at the i should specify when you look at at the spherical nanoparticles the five nanometer guys um they only you only see one lattice fringe orientation in the entire uh, particle. So it's a particle there with uh, it has uh, uh, with this this crystal lattice. It's all uniform, but um, in the intermediate size particles, they basically they are aggregates of these individually what, what were originally individual or separate nanoparticles. And uh, uh, so basically, this steer's head was the I guess the eureka moment, if you want to call that. It basically uh, was. Uh, to our knowledge, the 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 first at least convincing image where you can show this and you can go all over. There's other particles like this too, where we have these these masses of uh, uh, of flocculated nanoparticles. And so that's you know that's the first step to uh, scaling up to the to the fist size nugget of gold. So interesting, so neat. 
Well, thank you so much for stopping by the show. And thank you, all of our listeners, for listening to Geochemistry. Big thanks to Duncan for stopping by, dishing some very interesting, very different tea, and then taking us on this journey. Thanks to our sponsor, LKI Consulting, and to It's Water and Coma Media for our music. And if you want to learn more about the show, submit a request to be on the show or recommend a geochemist to uh, to chase up, please go to our website at geochemistry.com and send us a message on our contact page. I'm looking forward to chatting with everybody next month. And until then, enjoy reading the next paper we have posted on our website. 